0: And our passage this morning, as we continue in just this brief little series, Advent in the Psalms, Psalm 85, we'll read it in its entirety as we look at the, uh, the second week, this, this song of peace that we have before us. And so, uh, Psalm 85, beginning in verse 1, let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Lord, you were favorable to your land, and you restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Uh, let, let, me, let me pray briefly and, and ask God to bless the preaching of the word. Let us pray. Lord, would the, the words of, of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, would you attend the, the preaching of your word uh, to do what only you can do, which is to bring us to see Jesus. Which is bring us to to a place where you are creating faith. You are molding our minds and our hearts and our desires and our wills more and more into the way of your son. Lord, that's a work that only you can do. And so we pray that you would do it even here and now. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. One of the more polarizing aspects of the Christmas season is, of course, Christmas music. I have known people, uh, maybe you are some of these kinds of people, where if you, if you are feeling a bit gloomy, you just want to put on some Christmas music, even if it's the middle of May, which is just so weird. But this, this, is, this is the no-judgment zone. Why am I saying that? It's the no-judgment zone. In my house, music, uh, Christmas music doesn't start until the Friday after Thanksgiving, and that's just permission. Permission to play the music begins then. There's, you don't have to if you don't want to. And so many songs at Christmas time, when you think of, of secular songs that have been popularized over the last 50 years, or you go back to traditional uh, Christmas carols and Christmas hymns, so many of these songs, even if they're coming from it from so many different angles, they all speak, or so many of them speak, to this idea of peace. It can be a longing for peace, like we just want to talk about it and we want to kind of put our trust in this kind of human impulse and human desire to have peace on earth. From a Christian perspective, so many of the songs are announcing what the angels sang, that Jesus has come to bring peace on earth. And of course, as we sing these songs and as we hear these songs that are all about peace, we're also looking at a world that doesn't know peace at all. And one of the refrains of this message this morning is not only does the world not know peace, but our homes on the best days are defined by we, we had relative peace. How could we want world peace when our homes barely have peace themselves? No song captures this better, this tension, between wanting peace and this season that's always announcing peace than the carol I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which I printed some stanzas for you in your bulletin. This is by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, And, and the story behind the carol is powerful. His eldest son, Charlie, had enlisted in the Union Army in 1863 at the height of the American Civil War. This was just two years after Henry's wife died after her dress caught on fire. And Henry himself tried to put the fire out and suffered disfiguring burns. So not long after losing his wife, his son enlists in the army. And just a a few weeks into his uh, time in the military, he, he suffers what first is announced as a gunshot to the face, That wasn't true. Then they said it was a gunshot to the spine that paralyzed him. That also wasn't true. Thankfully, I guess, he just got shot in the shoulder, and eventually he would be okay. But on Friday, December 25th, Christmas Day, 1863, Longfellow is a 57-year-old widowed father of six. He thinks his oldest son is paralyzed in a hospital bed, and he hears Christmas bells ringing at the church down the street, and he hears the choir singing from the Gospel of Luke, Peace on Earth and Goodwill to Men. And as he heard these beautiful sounds of peace, he could only observe a world of injustice and violence that just seemed to mock the words, as he would put it in his song or poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. He contrasts the song sung and the cannons that thunder, drowning out this message of peace. And so he later will say, and in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and it just mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. We can feel these words, right? We can feel those words. We know to some extent this world is a world of suffering And death, of grief and pain. And it so easily drowns out this manufactured announcement that now is the time to sing about peace. And yet, Advent is the anticipation of the peace that we just can't let go of. Because it's the peace that we need, and it is the peace that accompanies, that is part of Jesus' kingdom that he brings. So last week, we began this mini series. Working through the songbook of the Bible, the book of the Bible that's for us to sing. These are the scripts. These are the words that we are to proclaim and sing together. And it's such a fitting book for Advent because God's people most of the time are awaiting people. We too are awaiting people. We need things to change. We can't make the change itself, and so we need God to act. And we see this again in Psalm 85. What we see in Psalm 85 is quite simply God brings peace. We live in this state of discord. We are a people in turmoil. And Psalm 85 longs for the peace that God brings. Biblical peace, which we'll see this. He merges with the idea of God bringing life. This restoring language, reviving language. It's part and parcel of the peace that God brings. We need Peace. And that's what this psalm offers us. And so what we're going to do, we're going to work through the psalm. It's pretty short, about eight verses. Uh, It's it's beautifully split up into four sections that we'll work through. And we'll talk about each section as it comes. And so the first section that begins in verse 1 is the psalmist in Psalm 85 wants us to remember. When we come before God, we need to remember who he is. And so take a look at verse one. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So what are the first two words of this song? Lord, I. Lord, me. No, those aren't the first two words. Lord, you, Lord, you, it's an Advent psalm. God has to save. Lord, you have to do something. The psalmist grounds the anticipation for future change. I need you to do this, and the reason I come before you is because you are the God who acts. You are the God who has done things. I need you to work, and my confidence that you will work is because you are the God who quite simply has worked. Lord, you, the psalm starts with God, the psalm ends with God. It starts with his character, his ability, his desire. This is what you have done, and it carries us through to the end of the psalm. This is what you will do in verse 12. And if God is who he says he is, how the Bible describes him, he's he's the eternal one, he's the unchanging one, then we can have great confidence in who this God is and what he is capable of doing. Lord, you were favorable. You restored. You covered. You withdrew your wrath. You turned away from your anger. So what do we learn about God from this passage? He is sovereign over his creation. He has a relationship with his creation. He has an ability to bestow favor on it. He raises up those who are brought down low. He restores, he mends those who are broken. He increases those who lack. This is a God who is so intimately acquainted with his creation. And it makes sense. Like we, I think most of us know this. His creation needs him. Not just for physical sustenance, right, but but spiritual fulfillment. All of what makes us people, humans, we would say image bearers of God. Not just relying on food and shelter, but on purpose and meaning. And this is all true because God created his people to live for him, to trust him, to enjoy him, to delight in him. And so why the lack of peace in our world Big picture, no peace. Small picture in our own individual worlds, there's no peace. Well, it's because there's a chasm. There's a separation between us and God, and there is no peace. There's discord, struggle, tension. So the psalmist looks back at what God has done for his people in the past. God, you are the one who overcomes enmity. You are the ones who overcomes the sins of your people. This is who you are. You are the God who creates a kingdom of priests and a holy nation out of a stiff-necked people who at the first moment of things going wrong, they just grumbled to be back enslaved in Egypt. You are the God who cares and provides for a people who after you have given them everything they need, when Moses has gone too long according to their timetable, they just melt everything together, create a golden calf and start worshiping. And what is the Old Testament? What, What does our Bible consist of except that story being told over and over again? God restoring those who drift. God restoring those who find themselves overcome by a world and by homes and by hearts that don't know peace. But the psalmist announces "That's you are the God who hears those same people. You are the God who hears the cries of your people and you respond. And this is where our hope is grounded. You are the God who has done this in the past. Would you do it again? And so the psalmist here, on on behalf of Israel, on behalf of us, he is our model. He's found himself in a state of conviction. We need peace. We need life. We need restoration. And he senses this lost relationship, this loss of peace, this loss of joy, this loss of wholeness, this loss of flourishing. So the first thing, right, he calls us to remember who God is. Secondly, the psalm calls us to repent. Secondly, this psalm calls us to repent, especially in light of who God is. And so look at verse 4. This is the repentance. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Again and again. This is the theme of the Old Testament, right? Israel, this unfinished product. Throughout the Old Testament, it's the refrain, Lord, restore your people again and again. Which is probably similar to you and me. Isn't this our prayer most of the time? We need God to restore us, not for the first time, not for the second time, but Lord, restore us again and again and again, and he does. Because this is who God is toward his people. The psalmist cries out, put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Notice that the psalm is not pining for past glories. He's not saying we want our fortunes back. We want to be rich again. He's pining for past mercies. The plea here in this word is for forgiveness. The plea is for a restored relationship with God. And again, this psalm merges peace with life, God-given life, abundant, full life. And so he uses these words for life-giving, like reviving. To come to God in repentance is to trust in who he is and to know that the need is for this reviving in order for there to be peace. So the question that we need to ask ourselves in light of Psalm 85 is, do we before God know that we have this need of his reviving work? I think we all want peace. We can be a little cynical when Miss America says all she wants is, is world peace. And we can be a little cynical. Hopefully we're not too cynical. Hopefully we say, I want that too. It's just a little bit more complicated than that. Why is it more complicated than that? It's because we need reviving. It's because we're dead. Humanity at large. The world is dead. You know, what makes the church the church at its best is that we are the people who come together to cry out, Restore us again. That's what makes the church the church. We are the people who come together and we don't say, You've restored us once. We don't say, Those out there need restoring. We cry out, Restore us again. That's a saving confession. That's the only reason to come here and skip brunch. The only reason not to sleep in is that we come here and we say, Jesus, you alone have the words of life, and I need life. Restore us again. Maybe you need reviving because your spiritual life has gone stale. Maybe you read the Bible and it just feels like it's not getting through to you. Um, m- maybe you uh, come to church exclusively uh, as a, out of a sense of duty. Uh, maybe you're just going through the motions and so your spiritual life is flatlined and you need reviving. You need to come into this place and you need to cry out, Lord, restore me again. Maybe you need reviving because just your life is a mess, a complete mess. You, you feel absolutely out of control and you don't know what life is going to bring. Uh, forget about two weeks, tomorrow you don't know what life is going to bring. You see, the state of our world, if I were to take a poll of you and I asked you, what do you think the biggest problem in our society or the world is, I would get so many different responses. Probably most of them are true, and God hates all of those reasons, but the world is just a mess. And so we're in this time of year where everyone's telling us to have happiness and cheer, but the world's broken. And it's overwhelming, and so we cry out, we need peace. I need peace. My neighbor needs peace. Well, what if the lack of peace wasn't the heart of the problem, it's just a symptom? Imagine someone that has stomach cancer. Uh, You get the diagnosis of stomach cancer because you had to go to the doctor because something was wrong. You were in pain, your stomach hurt. And so there's a sickness that comes with the cancer. You have pain, discomfort, nausea. And if you were to go to a doctor and you were to explain your symptoms, and the doctor says, okay, I hear you, so I'm going to prescribe medication to take care of the pain and the discomfort, and the doctor sends you on your way with no further testing, what kind of doctor is that? A terrible doctor. It's a bad doctor. Because while the symptoms have been treated, the sickness has gone untreated, and the sickness left untreated will be very deadly very soon. Well, so too our world is sick, and the sickness is sin. Sin is this willful rebellion against the one true and living God, and the sickness precedes symptoms, death, pain, suffering, grief, loss. It's as horrific as genocide that takes place in this world. It is as intimate as the frustrations we feel toward our loved ones. We say, I love these people more than anyone else in the whole world, and yet they are the ones who receive the brunt of my sin. There is no peace. So treating the symptoms isn't wrong what we do most of the time we hide and we numb what's going on so that we can feel okay but if the sickness isn't dealt with it's deadly if sin and separation from god isn't dealt with it's deadly so god reminds us we need him he is the cure to our sickness and it's the mercy of god to make us feel this separation to drive us back to him and so we pray restore us again Revive us again. Give us life again. God, you're the cure to the sickness. Give us life to the fullest. I mean, don't you long for peace? Don't we as a congregation long for peace? Long for reviving? Long for joy? So the psalm guides us to remember, to respond. The third thing the psalm reminds us is to receive. Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak to stop and receive the word of the Lord. If you're like me, I think most of us are, are, can be okay at the first two steps, but we start losing it here. Many of us in our lives, we stop after verse 7. What I mean by that is we are in a place where we acknowledge that life is just a mess. It's chaotic. We're in trouble. And so we stop and we cry out to God. I think that's most of our experiences as we realize the trouble. We cry out, Lord, I, I, you are the kind of God who responds to trouble. I'm in trouble. Help me. We're faced with adversity and we cry out and we pray, but then we just move on. We don't take the time to stop and listen. We don't listen to God's word. Not an audible voice from heaven, but in his word, God speaks to us. He has given his word in order to speak into our lives. And so we see this here. How does God respond to this cry for restoration? Such a powerful response. It's a hopeful response. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. He speaks peace. This, this, of course, is not just the absence of conflict. This is not just tranquility or serenity. It's not just this peaceful watercolor scene. He speaks shalom. He speaks wholeness and completion. He speaks life as it's meant to be. He speaks creation as he created it. This is the commanding, soothing voice of authority that speaks amidst the chaos. It's something that... Like when you and I speak soothing words into the life of a crying child. Maybe if you've had children or you have children or you have a nephew or a niece who's crying and they come to you and you have this sympathy toward them and so you speak peace into their life. Shh, shh, it's going to be okay. It can be scary sometimes. Maybe you're in an ambulance on the way to the emergency room or maybe you're in the back seat while your spouse is driving and you're on the way because you are just as scared as they are but you still speak that peace. Shh, shh. It's going to be okay. It may not be okay, but you still speak those words into the life of your child. But God does know if it's going to be okay. God does know when there is peace to be spoken. So God speaks shalom with, with this divine authority. It will be okay. I think this is a word that we need as much as any word. To hear God say peace into our lives. For hundreds of years, our mothers and fathers in the English speaking church would pray every single day that God would lead them into a godly, sober, and quiet life. How do you live a life that is godly, quiet, and sober? You have to hear the voice of God saying, It's okay. Peace. Peace to you. God speaks. Shalom with his divine authority into our chaos. Okay, but how do I know that God's word in Psalm 85 applies to me? There's a very particular context here. I think the context is likely Israel is returning out of exile back into the land. And so the psalmist is saying we need more than just to rebuild our houses. We need God's restorative work into our lives. And we need his forgiveness for our sins. And so how does that word apply to us? And frankly, it's because we have a better word. We have a better word. We have shalom that is sealed in the blood of Jesus. Jesus entered our depths as we looked at last week in order to bring peace. Jesus from heaven's throne speaks the divine authoritative, it will be okay. I have you, I have this. God speaks a peace that he will create. Again, in verse eight, we read, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. I think that's a bad translation because it's conditional. God will speak peace, but they, might, they, they should not return to this way of folly. That's not how it reads. It should read something like, God will speak peace and he will not let them turn back to their foolish ways. God speaks a reality that he creates. This is the peace of Advent, that God brings peace through his son Jesus, and through his better kingdom, he pulls us into that glory. And so to receive this word rightly is to put your fear and trust and awe in God, and to, by his spirit, walk in the path of peace and reconciliation, in a world of destruction and chaos and death, to wave the banner over us of the peace of Jesus' kingdom. To forsake the false saviors and false controls and false idols of this world which sow discord and hatred and strife and to entrust yourself to the God who saves. Is this easy to do? No, which is why we are the people who cry out what? Restore us again. Restore us again. Our hearts drift out of alignment. Restore us again. You can sense God's delight in his saving, saving, life giving work in this psalm. He's not a hesitant Savior, he's an eager one. He loves to be called upon. There is delight in rescuing his people and bringing salvation. No passage in the Bible speaks to this truth more than Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, he will quiet, he will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The angel song to the shepherds was just a variation of that same theme. Jesus, the mighty one who is mighty to save, he's in your midst. He's the one who can quiet your anxious hearts. He's the one who is your peace and he makes peace for you by the blood of his cross. That's the love song loudly sung over us. After receiving God's word of peace, we turn to the final point that the psalmist gives us, which is we respond. We receive God's word and then we respond. The Christian life is a life lived in response to receiving God's kingdom of peace. Verse 10 is beautiful, right? It's just so poetic. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace, they kiss each other. What does this mean? What is this describing? It's a poetic picture of the kingdom of of God. Describe the kingdom of God for me. Go to to this verse. Covenant keeping, never quitting love and faithfulness. Yeah, they meet and righteousness and peace. They're not romantic. They're like two lifelong friends who haven't seen each other and they come and they embrace. For 2,000 years, Christians have said Psalm 85 is about Jesus and his kingdom. Most of you know me enough to say, you know I agree with that. You bet it's about Jesus and his kingdom. It's about our king who in steadfast love came down from heaven, born of Mary, faithful for us in every way. It's Jesus, the righteous one, who secured our peace with God so that we, as the children of God, could find our lives in him. The gospel of peace kisses the way of righteousness. And this kingdom of steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace is breaking into this world even now through his church to be a people shaped and formed by the kingdom of Jesus. God's righteousness rains down from the sky, the psalmist says, and what happens? Faithfulness springs up in response to that righteousness. God's righteousness rains down over us in favor and affection and then we in turn are faithful to him. The Lord gives the good, the land gives the fruit. God gives what he gives which is good and our land, you and I, we yield its increase. God gives the good, we bear the fruit. We respond. This is a psalm that's about God's work of turning us to him which is what Christmas is about. It's God's answer to no peace and our invitation to joy in Him. But of course, we're still awaiting people. The thunder of cannons still can drown out the songs of peace. The tears of the grieving um, can still drown out the songs of peace. The pressures of the world still threaten to drown out the singing of peace on earth. And so we're awaiting people that long for the only thing that will disrupt the sin. And brokenness of this world in our hearts. The kingdom of peace. Where steadfast love and faithfulness. And righteousness and peace kiss. We wait. We long for a time when turning to God. And crying out for restoration will be no more. Because there will be nothing else to repent of. Because there will be no more sin. God will not have anger to remove. Because there will be nothing for God to direct his anger toward. Peace. Peace heaven and earth in perfect union. This is what Jesus has ushered in and what we long for to be known in full. Uh, The illustration that comes to mind is, is it's a little bit cold outside right now. If you come from a place that's a lot colder, then maybe this also will resonate with you. But just think of a park that's frigid and dark and cold and the sun's out, and there's just a beam of sunlight that has a line that just directs itself right into the middle of that cold park. And so you flock to that light, because even when it's cold, that sun feels so good, and it feels so warming. That's a picture of the church in this age. We're supposed to flock to that light We are to flock to that warming light and by our love and lives and by sharing the hope in Christ that we have, we are to invite others, even as we wait for the sun just to come in full and eliminate the darkness and the cold. And that will happen when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in full. The peace that we long for is the peace that God offers through the advent of his son, our savior Jesus Christ. He has come. And he is coming again. To end where we began, I heard the bells on Christmas Day doesn't end in cynicism. The last stanza says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. So that carol, Like Psalm 85, like the hope of the gospel insists that the singing of peace on earth will continue. It will outlast the painful sounds of this world and it will answer sufficiently the cries of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, in order to do justice to the reality of your kingdom of peace and our need of your kingdom of peace, we have to have our eyes open to see the lack of it in this world. We have to have our eyes open to the inability for us to produce a kingdom of peace. And Lord, when we do that, when we take inventory of what is lacking, when we are reminded and and we have come to grips with the way that the sin and destruction and brokenness of this world um, can very much sound like it's just mocking this cry for peace. Do we remember your kingdom? Your kingdom that's broken in now? This reminder, this announcement of what Jesus, you brought in your first coming, which is here is the kingdom that I am bringing to you of life and joy and peace. And Lord, as we find ourselves awaiting people, we long for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And so Lord, would you build us up? For those who struggle, for those who struggle in this room to, to grasp your goodness amidst this world that has no peace. Lord, I I pray that you would direct those very longings for peace to the one who provides it. That you would direct those who have this hunger for shalom, for contentment and well-being, for the world as we just have this idea it's supposed to be a different way. It's not a fiction. It's not a phantom appetite that can never be satisfied, but it's a breadcrumb that leads us to your better kingdom. And Lord, for those of us who do believe, it can still be hard and we need that good news too. So would you help us to fix our eyes on that kingdom of steadfast love and faithfulness, of righteousness and peace, of the kingdom of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.